Chapter six of Prophets, Priests, and Kings by Alfred George Gardner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter six The Premier I asked Mr. Burrow on one occasion what he thought of the oratory of the present Parliament. Oratory, he replied, there is none. Parliamentary oratory is dead dead without hope of resurrection the house wouldn't listen to it to-day the speeches it likes best are in the style of asquith plain lucid statements gathering up all the arguments the right word the clean phrase and no frills and sincerity does that count i said not a straw he answered with that wholesome cynicism with which he checks all tendency to pretense or preachiness i left roland hunt talking in the house just now we were dining below he's as sincere as they make em and the whole house is rocking with laughter no no a plain tale without any missionary fervor that's the thing that counts asquith is the model i went into the house later in the evening and there chanced to find mr asquith in the midst of a speech he stood at the table firm as a rock hard as adamant his heavy voice beating out his theme with great hammer strokes his eye fixed implacably on the front opposition bench so had i seen him stand fifteen years ago on the platform of a northern town while featherstone featherstone a murderer echoed round the hall it was the greeting which always assailed him in those days possibly it assails him still he stood with his arms folded the massive head thrown back the strong mouth clenched the eye lit with a cold indifference and scorn he made no protest offered no comment but allowed the cries to flicker out and then proceeded as though nothing had happened here was a man who at least was not afraid he might be wrong but he would never run away a man of granite mr george russell i believe has been heard to say that he envies the brain of lord milner more than that of any man living needless to say he would have had it motived by other enthusiasms if i were disposed to envy other people's brains and wanted power and not imagination i would envy mr asquith's it is of the same class as lord milner's and i think better of its class it is the palio brain at its best it is incomparably the most powerful intellect in the house of commons to-day not the finest nor the subtlest nor the most attractive but the most effective it has none of the nebulous haze that invests mr balfour's mental evolutions none of the cavalry swiftness of mr churchill or mr lloyd george none of the spaciousness and moral exhilaration of lord morley it is dry and hard lacks colour and emotion but it has weight force power it is a piece of faultless mechanism it works with the exactness of mathematics with the massive unhasting sureness of a natural force it affects you like the machinery that you see pounding away in the hold so measured so true so irresistible it is the nasmith hammer of politics go and bring the sledge-hammer said c b to one of his colleagues on the treasury bench in the midst of an attack by mr balfour and mr asquith duly appeared this mental precision is reflected in his tastes he is an ingenious mechanic and i have been told that years ago when cycling was the sensation of the hour he constructed and rode a machine with so many original devices that the king then prince of wales invited him to make him one like it 
perhaps this is only one of those legends that gather about distinguished men but it is in keeping with the character he has the directness of the yorkshire stock from which he springs asquith will get on said jowett he is so direct he does not skirmish or finesse he does not faint or flourish he heaves himself on the enemy's centre and caves it in the sentences of his orderly speech march into action like disciplined units marshalled and drilled every word has its mark at every sentence you see a man drop he creates the impression of visible overthrow it is as though you hear the blow crashing on his opponent's front as though you see that opponent reeling to the ground take any of those speeches with which he pursued mr chamberlain through the country the cinderford speech for example it read like a succession of bull's-eyes at a shooting range you could see the flag go up at every sentence he talks like an advocate from a brief said mr chamberlain bitterly perhaps it was so but what a brief what an advocate he has the terseness of phrase that is taught by the pen rather than by the tongue the art is natural to his clear intellect, but it was perfected in those days when briefs were scarce and when, as a contributor to The Economist, he acquired that mastery of economics and finance which made him supreme when the free trade issue emerged. "'I forgot Goshen,' said Randolph Churchill. "'I forgot Asquith,' might be Mr. Chamberlain's summary of that titanic duel. He understands the value of brevity as no other man does he can be compact as an essay of bacon his capacious mind brings up all his legions at will into one massive movement and discharges them in a series of shocks take that instance when the house had been engaged in the familiar task of trying to discover whether mr balfour was a free trader or a protectionist the debate had reached its close mr balfour was still both and neither mr asquith rose and in a speech of two minutes and half a dozen sentences left him a wreck shattered fore and aft if the object of controversy is to clear the air and carry conviction to the mind he is incomparably the most powerful debater of his time as a boy his gift of lucid statement and breadth of comprehension was apparent when he came up from yorkshire to the city of london school dr abbott the headmaster was at once struck by his powers of debate while the boy society debated dr abbott corrected exercises but when asquith entered the society he said i began to find this difficult finally whenever he entered the lists of orators i resigned myself to a willing attention and was content to take my exercises away with me uncorrected he has nothing of the tumultuous energy and passion of fox as pictured in hazlitt everything showed the agitation of his mind his tongue faltered his voice became almost suffocated and his face was bathed in tears he was lost in the magnitude of his subject he reeled and staggered under the load of feeling which oppressed him he rolled like the sea beaten by a tempest mr asquith does not roll like the sea he stands as pitt stood like a rock beaten by the sea he creates confidence and carries conviction but he does not inspire men with great passions his eloquence keeps to the solid earth it does not fly with wings it assures you victory but it denies you adventure it is a favorite saying of lord morley that great thoughts spring from the heart 
mr asquith does not utter great thoughts no balliol man of the jowett tradition does the balliol mind distrusts great thoughts even if it thinks them it believes they come from weak minds and soft hearts from zealous persons with good emotions but defective intellects balliol in fact is really atrophy of the heart it is exhaustion of the emotions it has produced the finest mental machines of this generation but they are sometimes cold and cheerless they lack atmosphere and the humanities they have none of our frailties they are intellectual sublimities beneath whose huge legs we creep peeping about to find ourselves dishonourable graves we admire them we respect them we do not love them for we feel that they would be insulted by the offer of so irrational a thing as love mr asquith is handicapped by this apparent chill of the spirit it gives him the sense of remoteness and hardness which those who know him best declare is unjust to the real man behind that exterior of adamant there are the shy virtues of geniality and even tenderness and in personal contact you are impressed not merely by his masculine grip of affairs but by his courtesy and consideration but a popular figure he is not perhaps does not seek to be he comes to the front by sheer authority of intellect and owes nothing to the magnetism of personality he meets the world in the office not in the parlour of his thoughts and no genial stories gather about his personality he has the merits as well as the defects of the jowett tradition it was material and unimaginative it produced curzonism and milnerism it lacked sympathy and insight because sympathy and insight like great thoughts spring from the heart it built upon facts and scorned human sentiment which is the greatest fact of all in the government of men but it has the high quality of reserve it cultivates no illusions raises no false hopes it understates itself with a certain chill repudiation of popular applause its deeds are often better than its words its bills more drastic than its promises no one ever accused mr asquith of being a demagogue and when his opponents charge him with falsity of word or conduct they do it knowing that no one believes them and not believing it themselves for he moves in the clearest atmosphere of truth of any public man of his time artifice and affectation are as alien to him as excess or inexactness and the firmness of his mind enables him to preserve a singular detachment from the momentary passions of debate violence and recrimination find in him no response he may utter a rebuke and it may be severe but it is free from venom or any personal taint and is governed by the desire not to score a mere dialectical point but to elucidate a position this detachment from the pettiness and meanness of controversy is largely the source of the growing authority he has established over the house he restores its self-respect liberates its better emotions and recalls it to its rational self i have seen him following on the most embittered attacks change the whole temper of the house and lift the discussion to an atmosphere of dispassionate calm by the firmness with which he has put away all temptation to meet thunder with thunder and has concentrated on the plain facts of the situation the effect is like the shock of cold water upon an angry mob it is not the sweet reasonableness of the quietist nor is it the calculated persuasiveness of the advocate 
it is the judicial quality in its highest expression grave aloof indifferent to the feelings aroused concerned only with the facts and the principles involved in them no party leader ever conveyed a more complete sense of disinterested aims and unbiased judgment his power of work is unequalled for the strength of his mind is backed by a physique equal to any burden his capacious intellect grasps the subject in all its bearings with an ease and comprehensiveness that never fail to win the admiration of those who approach him there is little subtlety in his thought just as there is little delicacy in his utterance it is a purely masculine understanding powerful and direct he was in other days one of the society of souls but que diable one would as soon look for cromwell of whom in features and in some other respects he is reminiscent among the curled cavaliers as for him in a dilettante circle that was the natural element of mr balfour who was fitted for the role of mr bunthorne but there is nothing precious or transcendental in mr asquith's equipment he is precise as a time-table his vocabulary is abundant but it consists wholly of plain serviceable words without a touch of emotion or imagination and his vocabulary truly reflects his mental outlook he is the constructive engineer of politics not the seer of visions he leaves the pioneering work to others and follows after with his levels and his compasses to lay out the new estate no great cause will ever owe anything to him in its inception but when he is convinced of its justice and practicability he will take it up with a quiet undemonstrative firmness that means success it was so in the case of old-age pensions he made no electoral capital out of them seemed indeed to be unsympathetic he had won the victory for you almost before you realized that he was on your side no man in politics ever mortgaged the future less than he does or lived more free from promissory notes if he is wanting in any essential of statesmanship it is strong impulse to action he has patience rather than momentum he never seeks a quarrel and does not raise issues for the joy of action his temperament is easy-going and in strange contrast to his intellect a little flaccid unlike mr chamberlain or mr lloyd george he does not disturb the sleeping dogs of politics willingly and he would prefer a quiet life to the smoke of battle mr chamberlain's talk was wholly of the conflict he lived on the battlefield and drew from it all the interest of his life and all the material of his talk the conversation of mr asquith on the contrary though it has not the encyclopedic range and devouring intensity of mr gladstone has the same scholarly flavor the same love of the classics and of the literature of thought in his public utterances he conceals these interests with the reticence and dislike of display which are characteristic of him and which are so largely the secret of the small hold he has upon the affections of the public to be a popular leader one must be expansive and self-revelatory and mr asquith is neither it follows from all this that he owes nothing of his success to pushfulness ambition or intrigue his career has been singularly free from drama and sensation he emerged with a natural inevitableness wherever he came he overcame and opportunity never found him unequal to the occasion 
when in the parnell trial russell owing to indisposition left the cross-examination of macdonald of the times to him it was felt that it was a grave misfortune for here was the crux of the case if this went wrong all might go wrong when mr asquith sat down he had shattered the times case and made his own reputation when in eighteen ninety two mr gladstone entrusted him with the final attack on the salisbury government he did so with hesitation but after it he had no hesitation in making him home secretary mr asquith in fact is the man who never fails he is always intellectually bigger than his task two incidents in his career cannot be ignored he on the repeated telegraphic appeal of the mayor permitted military to reinforce the police in the featherstone colliery riots and two men were shot dead it was a regrettable incident of which whatever may be our view of the facts he has been adequately reminded at a hundred meetings since and though he believed the boer war unnecessary he dissociated himself from sir h campbell barnerman and was one of the founders of the liberal league that gathered around the disturbing figure of lord rosebery balliol did not come well out of the boer war but he never embittered an unhappy situation and when peace returned he was one of those who healed the breach i am i believe revealing an open secret when i say that he stood loyally by sir henry when the last rally of imperialism sought to drive him a roi fainéant to the house of lords and as his chief lieutenant his attitude won universal admiration not for its cold correctitude but for its generous and warm-hearted service no one in the cabinet was more loyal to the premier than he was and none of those who heard it will forget the noble speech he made on the occasion of his leader's death it was a speech that sounded unsuspected depths of emotion and seemed for once to lift the fireproof curtain of his reserve his succession to the premiership was a matter of course and as premier he is not inferior to a great lineage he does not at present command the affection that sir h campbell bannerman commanded nor the reverence that was gladstone's but he commands in a rare degree the confidence of his party and his handling of the parliamentary machine at once masterful and adroit has won universal admiration he is slow to take up adventurous causes but once convinced he has unequalled power to give them shape and in doing so to carry the conviction that comes from his own secure and unimpassioned intellect to that timid public who see the dread form of socialism in every effort after a more just and therefore more firmly rooted state End of chapter six